If you have a Bible or using your app, we're going to be in Matthew 26 and 27 today. Um, We're actually uh, kind of last week, this week, next week, and Easter, finishing up uh, the Gospel of Matthew and kind of walking down the road towards Jesus' crucifixion and uh, the actual end to the story. And if you remember, the Gospel of Matthew is written uh, to say that Jesus is the King, which means this part of the story gets a little bit confusing for people who have been reading along because if Jesus is the king, then why did he just get betrayed? Uh, last week, he, he, if you were, he is, well, this week and last week, he's betrayed, his disciples abandon him, he's arrested, and if you know the story, he's crucified, which we'll talk about next week. And, and it seems like if you're watching this in the theater or something, that this is a terrible end and the movie gets confusing because you're ready for him to be the king. And the people seemed ready for him to be the king, and then all of a sudden, everything changes. And so as we're walking through that radical shift, uh, there's some things, I think, that are um, truth for our life that we gain out of this, and not just um, theologically, but really in our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with the people around us. There is a lot of things that we can do theologically and just have fun and learn more and know more. But if the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is just something that we're like learning about and we're not something that we're able to live out or live in the way or live in the reality of his death and burial and resurrection, then really we've just gotten smarter. We haven't gotten more Christ-like and Jesus did not die so that you can be smarter, right? Like thankfully for many of us, Jesus did not require that. So um, we're going to read together Jesus last week at the end of the story and if you're if you listen to this on the podcast, you want to go back and listen to the week before as well, because last week, this week, and next week all kind of flow together. But there is, Jesus has done the eaten with his disciples and then gone out to the garden to pray, and Judas brought these soldiers that came and arrested Jesus. And today, it's still the middle of the night. If you think about the Holy Week, it's the middle of, like, it's late, we would call it late evening Thursday. They would call it early Friday, because their day started at, in, when the sun went down. And so there was night then day in their culture. And so this is Friday for them. We would call it Thursday night. And probably like around midnight, uh, like really late into the night, especially in a culture that doesn't have electricity. So this is verse 57. There's like five or six different little episodes. We're going to read each one and kind of see where it goes. And then uh, it'll end up, um, we'll talk about what that means for us. So the first episode, if you have subtitles, is Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, so Caiaphas stands up and says, Have you no answer to make? He's speaking to Jesus. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, which is their legal term for force you to to answer, I adjure you by the living God, tell us 
if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, Jesus' name for himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? Have you, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they, the entire council, answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So Jesus is arrested in the middle of the night and brought to this trial in the middle of the night as they wake up uh, a bunch of the members of the Sanhedrin. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. It didn't necessarily have to be all of them there. And they all went to Caiaphas's headquarters, which would have been kind of like a, like a White House kind of setup, They're like a palatial estate where the high priest lived. This was the high priest's house. High priest's house. And they would go in there and have this kind of mock trial. And the guards and the people are there. And there's probably a bunch of torches. And it's kind of strange for this to be happening in the, in the middle of the night. And it's kind of extra strange for Jesus' accusers to also be his judge. And so the Sanhedrin itself is the ones who are seeking these false witnesses. And they get people who are up in the middle of the night to lie for them and claim things against Jesus, but none of them are capital offenses, which is what they actually are looking for, a false capital offense. And you need a couple of witnesses for that so that they can declare him guilty of a capital offense and then kill him. And so they ask Jesus straight out if he's the Messiah. And to say that you're the Messiah, for you to say, I am going to sit at the right hand of power or sit at the right hand of God and I'm going to come... Um, riding on the clouds and coming on the clouds of heaven, Jesus is claiming divinity. And in their Jewish culture, a claim that I am divine is either true or blasphemy. And there's no chance of it being true. See, Jesus is guilty here because he's on trial. <laughs> right? You know you're a bad guy. All the bad guys in prison are bad guys because they're in prison. The guilt is assumed in this kind of a situation. Because he's on trial, he must be guilty. If he wasn't guilty, he wouldn't be on trial. And you can see how messed up legally in a legal system this is. And there's all sorts of bad things about this trial. They're seeking false witnesses. And actually the punishment for false, giving a false witness in a capital case is actually execution, which is what they actually, the judgment they pronounce on Jesus, which creates a rather ironic little situation. They're doing this little mock trial in the middle of the night, which is against the culture's acceptable norms. When there's a capital offense, they would have built into their system one day's deliberation so that things, so that we aren't killing people hastily. They would say, okay, we think he might be guilty. There's going to be one day before we can announce that or actually vote on that. But for Jesus, this all happens in the middle of the night as he's arrested. And then when they declare that he's guilty by question of, you've heard that he's guilty, now vote that he's guilty, they decide to spit on the accused and hit him and, and beat him down in a way that they'll guess who and, and test his prophecy or test if he can prophesy who hit them. If you can imagine being like one of Jesus' followers in this situation, 
or watching the show and you think that Jesus, who just came in the previous Sunday, this is now like late Thursday night, early Friday morning, the previous Sunday, the crowds were waving things around, hoping that the new king had come and that Jesus was here. And now everything had turned and gotten very, very bad for Jesus in just a couple of short hours. In a movie, you're watching this and you're like, just a second ago, the screen was all happy and people were smiling. And now in the story, everything has gone away. I didn't expect it to go. So Peter is sitting outside in the courtyard. This is verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while, the the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, meaning the sun is coming up. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so Jesus has one disciple who followed him. According to Matthew, one guy actually went down there, went down to see what was going on at the trial, and it's Peter. And two little servant girls come up to Peter and say, aren't you with Jesus? And he denies it violently. And then one of the bystanders says, surely you're you're with Jesus because you speak with a country accent like he does. Which, as a side note, is maybe the best part of the story. So, you know, like Jesus talked like he was from Mississippi, you know? And we're all like, we have these regal Jesuses, thee and thou. And Jesus would actually say, like, y'all eat my body and drink my blood and y'all come and follow me and and y'all come back now here. And this, like, (laughs) right? I spent some time in the South and that's all I got. But, But so, you know, like, we like this highly educated, super white, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. And Jesus, more than likely, was missing some of his teeth because he chewed too much tobacco and didn't move his tongue when he talked, all right? And I know some of you are like, I don't want that Jesus. And I understand, I understand it might take you a while to accept that Jesus because this Jesus loves you. And this Jesus, when you get to heaven, is going to be there. That's right. <laughs> he ain't going to be wearing shoes, probably no shirt, just like overalls. And he's probably going to hug you because he doesn't understand social boundaries, right? And you'll be like, Jesus, maybe it's time for a shower, right? But, and maybe that's the test of heaven or hell. But anyways, I, this is like, nobody talks about this because this book doesn't sell, right? But Jesus was completely country, apparently. And, uh, and, and that might be the best part about Jesus, like the only good part of this whole story. The main point, though, isn't that Jesus was country or that I said Jesus chews tobacco, which theologically I'm not sure that's true, but anyways, the, or historically, but anyways, the, given the chance. So anyway, <laughs> I'm like digging a hole over here, and you think, 
James, you should stop. And I'm like, but it's so fun, and I'm going to keep doing it. So we'll put that in the life group questions. Um, what kind of tobacco do you think Jesus chewed? Oh. The real point of the story isn't that Jesus is country, though. The point of the story is Peter's denial, which you know. And Peter freaks out because he's scared for his own life, and he sees that Jesus is on trial and is going to have a guilty verdict whether he's guilty or not. And he's preserving himself by denying his relationship with Jesus. He's choosing himself. He's, his anxiety, his worry, his uh, prejudging the situation knows this isn't going to go good for me and so I need to protect me. Meaning he doesn't trust Jesus to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. Instead, he has a better solution for what will go better for his life. So when the morning came, this is chapter 27, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Which probably means they had a short actual trial because it's daylight and they bound him and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate the governor now he has to be given to Pilate the governor because the Jews didn't have the authority to kill people under Roman rule the Romans would let the local people kind of govern themselves up to a point but if there was a capital offense that you were going to kill someone you can't just go around killing people and so this would have to be brought to the Romans and the Romans would have to actually declare uh, his uh, verdict of execution, or his verdict of guilt and the sentence of execution. So then as Jesus is being brought to Pilate the governor, so he's leaving Caiaphas' house and being brought to Pilate's headquarters. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, Judas changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and in case you don't know the story, Judas betrayed Jesus so that he could be arrested out of the city in the middle of the night, and they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver for this. Judas says this to the chief priests and the elders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, saying that Jesus is actually innocent. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them, and, sorry, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him whom a price, the price of him on whom a price had been set by, the sons, by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So we have Peter denying Jesus. We have Jesus being handed over to Pilate and then it flips to another scene where Judas returns the money that he got to betray Jesus and says Jesus is actually innocent. And then the religious institutional leaders actually refused to take the money because it's blood money. We can't receive it. The irony of that is their, it's their blood money. <laughs> like they paid the money 
and by pain. And so then they separate themselves and say, oh, whoever gave you that money is blood money. We can't receive that money because of whatever happened over there. And somehow separate themselves from themselves in doing that. Can you see the like, illegality or the unethical nature of the whole thing that's happening to Jesus? Judas sees that he's innocent. And then Judas, in despair... And you can read more about these in other Gospels, but Judas in despair goes and commits suicide, hangs himself. And in their culture, they had kind of an Eastern culture where suicide wasn't viewed the same way we view suicide. It was more of a, uh, in certain situations, would be an honorable way to die, which we don't, I don't believe, but that would be culturally what they would say. But for Judas... And you can read this in other Gospels. He commits suicide out of despair. And it's written this way intentionally so that the original readers don't think that this was honorable. Like the Scripture actually teaches that Judas' choice isn't good as far as goodness goes. And suicide, I don't think, is a simple enough issue to say good or bad or right or wrong or heaven or hell. Uh, I, I actually would prefer to back up from that and think that this is way more complicated than that. But the reality of the situation is that Judas is in so much despair over betraying Jesus that he gives back the money and then actually commits suicide. He enters into despair and can't see a way out of it. And so he makes his own way out of it in which he makes his way out of life or out of living altogether. And so we have this tragedy happening in the story where Jesus is being falsely arrested. Peter is abandoning Jesus. Judas, another disciple, happens to show back up and you think, oh, maybe Judas will redeem himself and then he ends up killing himself and so they, he's gone as well. And if you're reading this for the first time, the problem I think that we experience is that we know this story. Sorry that some of us experience is that some of us know this story. And if you know this story too well, then it starts to fall apart because you stop recognizing how terrible this thing is that's happening. And for the people who are experiencing this or the people who are reading this for the first time, you can't think possibly of a worse way for this story to end. Verse 11 says this, Now Jesus stood before the governor. This is Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So you know, this is the line of the book of Matthew, okay? Like, the Roman ruler, who's the representative of Caesar, says, are you the king of the Jews? And that's what the whole story's about. And what's Jesus' answer? You have said so. This is culturally, like, equivalent to, like, our saying, you said it. All right? Like, it's an affirmative with a little bit of swagger behind it. And Jesus says this with an accent, too, so you know, don't lose that. Country Jesus, who's been spit on and beat and didn't sleep last night, is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, dang straight I am. <laughs> right? This is the moment. If you're in the theater, you're out of your seats like, yes! Right? Because you're kind of country, too, because you're watching this movie without your shoes on, but in a theater. It's kind of gross, but you're country. So... This is the exciting moment. This is the crescendo. This is when, oh, right, Jesus is about to throw down. But when 
He was accused by the chief priests and the elders. Jesus gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor, Pilate, was accustomed to the release for the crowd, to release for the crowd any one prisoner for whom they wanted. And they had the notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had all gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, who was a murderer and a thief and an insurrectionist, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Let me read that again. For he knew that it was out of envy that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus. Besides, while he was sitting on his judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And in their culture, they believed that the gods brought them dreams. And now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And the crowd yells, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, disturbing the peace of Rome and the Pax Romana, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, which would be a, a symbol. He didn't actually need to wash his hands. And he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So you know what's happening here is the crowd is calling for crucifixion with no reason. If you wonder why Jesus was crucified, the answer is actually for no reason. Technically, from this. Pilate says he's innocent. The only thing, like he's good at this, and so the institution is jealous or envious of him. And then the crowd chooses Barabbas, who was a murderer, who was like a criminal. They'd be like a terrorist style criminal. It'd be like, we have two people to choose from, and the crowd chooses the notoriously bad person who's going to get arrested again next week anyways. And then they actually call for the blame, like his blood to be on us and on our children, which according to Jewish law at the time, it, you actually is, it's like a, a illegal to be able to declare the, the blood of my sin to be on my children. And then Jesus, Pilate actually has Jesus scourged, which is to be whipped um, extremely violently, which sounds terrible, but is actually Pilate having mercy on Jesus because this would cause Jesus to die quicker once he is crucified. Pilate is actually working to speed up Jesus' death on the cross because you can be crucified and last overnight or a couple of days. And he thought Jesus was innocent, and so in a weird cultural way, he has mercy on Jesus by doing things that would cause him to die faster. It's a weird way because it's not, it's like, oh, uh, this is gonna hurt, gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. That's not true if you're receiving the spanking at all, right? I know you all say that as parents now, but I know you don't spank because we don't do that anymore, but 
blah, 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 blah. When you scourge your kids, you can tell them, this is going to make your crucifixion easier. When, I'm going to get in that hole, but when we read through this, it's important to see these kinds of things because we end up asking the theological question, right? Who killed Jesus? And throughout a lot of Christian history, we've decided that the Jews killed Jesus, and there was a little bit of motivation for anti-Semitic violence in that. Like, I mean, we pulled that stuff out to use the, a little bit of motivation for a lot of anti-Semitic violence throughout Christian history. And so the question becomes then, if Jews killed Jesus, though, then Jesus died just for the Jews and not for us, which biblically doesn't work out. If Pilate killed Jesus, then this is Pilate killing Jesus, then Jesus died for Romans and not for Jews. If Judas killed Jesus, then Jesus would have died for Judas. If Peter killed Jesus, then Jesus only died for Peter. Because when it backs all the way up to everything, we have to theologically land in a place that says, like in the often quoted John 3.16, that Jesus died for the whole world. And so it would then be that the whole world, and we'll talk about this more in coming weeks, that the whole world is a part of the reason for Jesus' death. But we end up thinking through this theologically, and we end up saying, here we've got a theological answer. And what that tricks us into thinking is that the point of Christianity is to have an answer. Do you catch that? Because there's like books written on this and blog posts and theologies and entire like people's lives are built on a particular answer that they have. And if we actually respect the scholarship of like pastors and Christian leaders, they end up with a whole bunch of different reasons and you end up more with like a community of answers to explain theologically what happened. But even in that, we end up falling to the temptation of just knowing. Instead of actually learning how to live in the way of the cross. And so I wanna, that's what I want to talk about right now. If you want to know who killed Jesus, um, Tony Jones, who's an author I love, just wrote a book called Did God Kill Jesus? And you can buy it. It's overpriced, but it's worth it. Uh, it is uh, fantastic. You can look on Amazon, blah, blah, blah. You can get it. He leans a little bit into like a moral kind of theory, but really it doesn't matter. Or read Scott McKnight's A Community Called Atonement. Okay, so if you want theology, you can go get that somewhere else. That's a terrible thing to say out loud. What I want to talk about is how this actually affects our real lives, right? Like if we learn of the arrest and the sentencing of Jesus today, how does that affect us this afternoon and tomorrow and Wednesday? If we go around saying, oh, well, I know something, then Christianity is knowledge-based. Or our faith is uh, not faith. It's a pursuit of knowledge. And the scripture teaches that knowledge actually puffs up and wisdom actually builds up. So you know, Aaron texts me back. <laughs> He still thinks it's funny, so we'll text him again around midnight. Um, 
Three things I want to talk about. Um, that Jesus' cross actually, living into the way of Jesus' cross actually is. And they're all from this story. All right, so it's like ABC. If you take notes, this is going to be a special gift for you. Uh, a, living into the cross is actually living into the peace of God. Living into the peace of God, P-E-A-C-E. In the, like we talk about in Eastern culture, uh, when we talk about Judas, Judas's suicide, his suicide was a result of an incredible amount of despair and anxiety. And when he gives into that, he gives into that, and it's over. And we talked about this last week when Jesus is praying in the garden and he actually says, my soul is troubled. Like Jesus is experiencing that level of anxiety. And that Jesus is, when you experience anxiety, the comfort isn't that God will get you through it or there's sunny days ahead. It's actually that Jesus is with us in that. And that's actually God being with us is an important part of this story. But God being with us doesn't mean that that's where you belong. And I don't want to present the cross as like a, a, a get-out-of-depression-free card or a, a happy pill or something like that. But the way of the cross is the promise that anxiety isn't the place that God designed for you to live. And I don't mean just work harder and get out of anxiety. That's not at all. If you hear that, I apologize. And that's not the way I want these words to come out. But I, do, I think that Jesus is with us in his anxiety. But because of his death and resurrection, we know that we don't belong in anxiety. We belong in peace. And I don't mean outward peace, but actually like a the Bible would describe like a harmony both inside us and in relationship to the people around us. This living in a way of peace is a result of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross so that you don't have to look at your anxiety and say the only way out of this is suicide. That's not true. That, let me say this, that is never true. Because of the cross, there is always a path to peace. And in God, the peace is actually described as a peace that passes understanding. And if you're in like a depressive place right now or experiencing a great deal of anxiety, I'm not trying to tell you, oh, just work harder or oh, just Jesus a little more. And then that's all going to go well. What I'm telling you is, the feeling that you have that this isn't where I belong is a feeling that you have because of Jesus' death and resurrection. The peace of God is available to all of us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so living into the cross in, a, in opposition to anxiety isn't a judgment on anxiety. It's a promise of peace. Secondly, the word is Solidarity. When you see Peter actually give himself, uh, choose his own self-preservation instead of aligning himself in solidarity with Christ, Jesus' death and resurrection actually allows us to live in solidarity with Jesus and with each other. 
that, that living together and being committed to each other is what the death and resurrection of Jesus is. Jesus dies and rises again so that Peter's sin, which is my sin and your sin just as much as Peter's sin, of abandoning solidarity doesn't need to be the way that we live. The disciple of Christ, by definition, chooses to honor God over self-preservation. In our culture, that's probably not going to come down to life and death, right? But there are going to be social, uh, maybe economic, maybe cultural consequences that actually happen in our life because of choosing honoring God over self-preservation. And I don't mean to make that like, oh, it's so rough for us because we have brothers and sisters in the Christian community around the world who are actually dying for their solidarity with Jesus, who are choosing honoring God over their own self-preservation. On a day-to-day basis in our world today, there are Christians who are being told it's you choose Jesus and you die or you switch and leave that faith and join our faith and we let you live for a little bit. The reason that they're able to choose solidarity is not because of their strength, is not because of their uh, culture or their upbringing or their encouragement or their ability. The reason that solidarity with Christ is possible is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And living into the resurrection is living in solidarity, is saying, when someone fails me, I choose to forgive them so that I can be with them. Solidarity isn't always a commitment on our end to be in solidarity with someone else. In this story, Jesus creates the ability for Peter to come back to solidarity with him. And so when we live in the way of the cross, we actually live in a way that forgives people who are at the point of unforgivableness. That family member or that former co-worker or that close relationship that used to be close but then was destroyed, you are able to forgive that person. And just like I talked about with the anxiety, I'm not presenting Jesus' cross as a magic forgiveness pill. Like here, do a little Jesus and then you forgive them. I think it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to forgive when the closeness of intimacy has been betrayed. But I know that it's possible because I see it in Jesus. I see Jesus choosing and allowing uh, death, his own death, his own crucifixion and resurrection in order that Peter can again be a disciple of Jesus. Peter ends up being the first leader of the church appointed by Jesus, which is kind of hilarious because he has the most epic failure of all the disciples, uh, next to Judas maybe. But Jesus actually like tells Peter, you're going to fail. Peter says, no, I'm not. Then he does. And then Jesus comes back and says, all right, you're in charge. <laughs> right? That level of forgiveness doesn't come easy to us. To be able to say to someone, 
I think you're going to blow it. I think you're going to destroy this relationship that we have. And they say, no, I'm not. And then they do. And then you say, I am still going to be in relationship with you. In fact, you should be the leader of our relationship. I think like from a business perspective or an emotional, psychological perspective, you might think that that is completely wonky. But for Jesus, that's solidarity that's only possible through the cross. So the peace of God, the solidarity of God, the third thing is actually the love of Jesus. Now, if you read when Jesus interacts with crowds, Jesus actually never trusts the crowd. Never. He always has compassion or pity, almost pity, compassion, and love for the crowd. But he never gives himself over to the desires or the wishes of the crowd, ever. Jesus lives a life counter to popular opinion and views popular opinion as something to have compassion on. What this means is, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we, as if you're a Christian, aren't required to fight a war against popular culture. Jesus doesn't lead a war against the desires of the crowd. He always has compassion on the crowd and never trusts the crowd for, which is, for knowing what is the right way forward. As Christians, in our culture, I think this might be one of the hardest ones to understand because we have a history the whole history of, of our country and really all of the history of Christendom from like the 317s or whatever, since Constantinople, it's all been a mix of Christianity and culture where what it is to be of European descent is to be, or to be <laughs> colonialized by the European religion is to be Christian. America, to all outside sources, is a Christian nation, right? This is, this is the, the narrative in our world. And so for, the, for us, this is a difficult one because for a lot of the decisions that Christian make, Christians make, it's based on a notion of a crowd rather than a life according to the Spirit of God. If Jesus, when he lived lived according to the scriptures, lived according to the leading of the Spirit in his life, and refused to entrust the crowd, then Christians, and in our culture this is the difficult one, I think, Christians can live in the way of the cross by following the scripture, the leading of the Spirit in our lives. The crowd... I don't care if it's against us or for us. I'll get emails all the time because I'm a pastor. I sign up for all these email things. And they say, the world is this or the world is that or there's an attack on this or an attack on that. And, and, and people get really like lathered up about this stuff and they're like, we've got to fight back. And then I read my scripture and the only thing I hear Jesus saying is, you dang straight, I'm the king. You see that? Like Jesus does not defend his 
Christianity, his claim to divinity. He does not defend his miracles. He does not defend what he did in people's lives. He does not defend his teaching. He says, here it is. Here's who I am. And what I need to defend is that I am actually the king. And so if the culture comes at your faith or comes at Christianity in an aggressive stance and you feel a need to fight back, I would say that a need you're feeling is more like Peter's lopping off the servant's ear in the garden with his sword than like Jesus. And so you know when Peter did that, Jesus reprimanded him on the spot. So the way that you follow Jesus actually affects the garbage you put on Facebook. Do you see that? The way that you follow Jesus actually affects the petitions that you sign or don't sign. The way that you follow Jesus affects the way that you actually live your life. It affects the things that come out of your mouth. Because you're not, I hope this is a little bit freeing, you're not required to fight on God's behalf. God is perfectly capable of defending himself. <laughs> and when you think you are required, like you need to speak up for God or else people are going to think bad of God, you're actually revealing a belief system that has limited God's power. Because the truth of the matter is, the Grove Church could be the worst church in town, like the worst, and God could still glorify himself. You could be the worst Christian in the worst church in town, and God can still glorify himself through you. He does not require you to be a certain thing for others. You know when this comes out, when people say, they might be the only Jesus you ever, they, that they ever see. I was told this as a Christian teen, and so you know, if I'm the only Jesus you ever see, <laughs> that is bad news for you. You're going to end up with a Jesus that's moody, that, that says bad things into a microphone, <laughs> that is a moderately adequate parent, <laughs> right? Like, it's just, like, there is, you're going to end up, if the only Jesus that you know is found in a person, then you're going to end up with a misrepresentation of who Jesus is. And so if I'm feeling like I need to be a certain thing, like I need to have a good witness, I hear that too, like God is depending on me, then I've got a God who needs me. <laughs> like you should say that and you actually should laugh because the, the stupidity of that statement denies who God is. We can't sing the songs that we sing to God if God needs us or if God needs defending. And I'm not saying, so you know, they shouldn't have a political opinion or blah, 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 blah. What I'm saying is people can have multiple opinions because God doesn't need to be defended by whoever the leader of this country is. God doesn't need to be defended by whatever news station you choose to watch. God doesn't even need to be defended by the Queen of England, which is more shocking for me than you. <laughs> But we can live a life of love and not fear and defense because Jesus lives a life of love. 
And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he opens the way and the Spirit of God gives the, the ability and the path to living a life of love. So that the Christians aren't known for their stance on issues. And they can have stances on issues. I have stances on issues. But my stances on issues matter very little if I do not love. The Bible would actually say they're like a clanging symbol if I do not love. My opinions and my stance are like a clanging elementary school band symbol if I do not love. And so I may not be known for my stand on this or my stand on that. I've been taken aside because I'm a pastor. If I share my opinion, there's always someone who says, how can you be a Christian and have that opinion? And that's when I know I've shared an opinion and I haven't shared love. Because what I want is to be known as that guy who loves. I want to be known as the guy who forgives and stands with people. I want to be known as a guy who even in really hard, really difficult, really anxious circumstances lives with the peace of God because of the death and resurrection of my Jesus. I'm going to pray that way for us. And I don't want to pray this in a theological sense like, oh, theologically live in peace and love and solidarity. But really in a Monday morning, getting the kids off to school, this week it'll be a little easier to live like this, but getting the kids off to school, getting into work, dealing with stress, having hard things happen in your life. In the like nitty gritty of life, when you're wrestling through the resurrection of Jesus is the way that you can live in that. Let me pray that way for us, please. Let's stand too, because we're going to worship together for good reason. Our God, we stand before you really uh, humbly, I think, because when we read the story, there's no doubt that some of us are Peter. There's no doubt that some of us are Judas. There's no doubt that some of us are Pilate, and some of us are so good at being religious that we're like the Sanhedrin or Caiaphas and the high priests. Most days when I read through a story like this, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the guy who's forgiving and loving and living in peace even in the face of my own destruction. But Jesus, I want to pray in a very real way that your spirit would descend on us in such a way that this would be the experience of our lives. Cause us to be like you. Not in a way that we want, but in a way that you are. Cause us to be like you in all that you are. Every day in our regular, ordinary lives, let us live the resurrection. By your name we pray. Amen.